What does healing mean to you? Being willing to be put through change, to be uncomfortable, to be willing to keep moving even when it's hard. Voices, the mental health podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing Voices. episode eight episode eight turning the corner toward episode 10 yes and before you know it 100 yeah we were just talking about phil vischer that's right the phil vischer show Ve- veggie tales fame yeah creative genius yeah he comes up with little jingles in a heartbeat on that show i know when there's ukulele spontaneous with ukulele <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah, but at the same time, he interviews you know some of the top theologians in oh, yeah. evangelical Christian yes. world, in T. Wright, and these big names. So he's on episode three hundred. We've got a lot of catching up to do, Eric. Yeah, that'll, that'll take a while. That the show is uh, they've changed their name to the Holy Post. Maybe we'll have Phil Vischer on the show. <laughs> Yeah, we need to let people know you're changing the name of the show, Phil. Well, hey, um, want to talk about why June 7th is such a special day. Why is June 7th a special day? Well, 10 years ago on June 7th, Columbus uh, lived through a devastating flood. Columbus, Indiana. Columbus, Indiana. Yes, right right here. I don't know if this property was flooded at all. Probably not. I don't think it was. But th- there were hundreds and hundreds of acres and homes that were, were flooded. And I, I was very involved in it. Uh, the hospital where I worked, Columbus Regional Hospital, was flooded. I worked there at the time, and they actually had me change my role to being full-time case manager of families who flooded and from that experience i wound up writing a book tony right watershed service in the wake of disaster yes and here we are it's been 10 years since that day and i'm still involved in the recovery in a way there's a neighborhood that lost 40 homes Mm -hmm. and fema bought the property and turned it into green space with uh a lot of regulations on what you can do Mm -hmm. involving very little building at all. And so I'm getting a community effort going and and we're going to create a a park in that space. Great. And we're having a uh, 10 year anniversary event on the property on June 7th. Yeah. On the day this podcast comes out, Mm -hmm. we're going to plant 10 service berry trees. Mm hmm. Yeah, and this relates quite well to mental health and, you know, people uh, both who've been impacted by natural disasters and recovery efforts that Eric was involved in. And I think his book attests to the fact that um, even when we are uh, 
down through floodwaters, there's hope and uh, there's ways that we can recover. Mm -hmm. People working together and uh, some overtly Christians, others who are <clears throat> just uh, share some of the same values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you hear the word community thrown around a lot. And sometimes it doesn't seem like it really carries that much of a meaning. But during that time in the, in the year after the flood, I have never been part of a full-on like city effort that felt like everybody was involved and sacrificing their time, volunteering, giving money, and just wanting to get things cleaned up and really in a lot of ways improved. Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful time, and mm -hmm. I'm really trying to capture a lot of that same spirit and putting an effort forward that's going to require a lot of money, a lot mm -hmm. of volunteering to, to create a new park. Yeah. Pleasant Grove Park. Pleasant Grove. Yeah. Has a nice ring to it, very soothing. Yes. Pleasant Grove. Yeah. Sounds a little bit like a cemetery, though, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a home cemetery. Uh-huh. Where, where a pollinator plants are going to emerge from the ground and hopefully be a place of a lot of uh, a lot of fun community events. Well, I have some big news, Eric. Yeah, I have made a new best friend um, from a shelter. Her name is Briley the Biscuit Roberts, and she is a Labrador retriever. Yeah. And very mild-mannered, um, has been um, used for breeding and was not successful. She had a litter of pups who died. And, uh, really? Yeah. And uh, They all died. Uh, that was the story they gave the shelter, so they, they gave her away. So their loss is my gain, and... Uh, it's it's been an incredible bonding experience. Mm -hmm. Very beautiful, very uh, uh, loving um, six-year-old lab. Yeah, I mean she's right uh, in the room next to us here, mm -hmm. and she has not made a peep. No, we we've had her now for f four days, and we haven't heard her bark yet. <laughs> and she's had she's been all over the house. We still have to. You just have to watch her when she leaves my vision because she is transitioning from an outdoor dog to a, yeah. to an indoor dog. So we have to have the timer about every hour. So. You know, Tony, when you told me, I said, why dog? <laughs> why now? <laughs> Eric, Eric is a cat lover. And, you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion that uh, you are either a cat lover or yeah. a dog lover and nev never the twain shall meet. We had a long conversation about the cats <laughs> on my episode. I edited the whole thing out, though. Oh, okay. I, the whole thing. Well, Shnu we'll and probably Harry. edit this out, too. <laughs> no, we're getting this in here. We'll try. Briley, Briley may be on the show a, a few episodes, too. I imagine she'll get acclimated to sitting yeah. beside us. And... Yeah. Okay, Eric. How, how about we start the show? Start the show. Kelsey Rockhold. Here we go. We have with us Kelsey Rockhold. Kelsey is a writer and a mama and a editor 
and an all-around good lady. Um, I've met Kelsey through our writing uh, blogs and also as we spoke at a conference called Shattering Stigma um, through stories. How are you doing, Kelsey? I am doing well, thank you. So we're going to ask Kelsey some questions about her mental health and faith. Uh, the first question I want to ask Kelsey is to tell us a little bit of something about your family growing up. What role did you play and what who shaped your faith? Uh, I am the oldest of three sisters. Uh, I have a sister who's four years younger and then another who is 11 years younger. And we are all extremely close. Um, we talk every single day, at least once a day. Um, my parents um, are happily married and um, just really poured everything into us growing up. Um, I was definitely the, I don't know, the extra parent, I think, for um, a good part of my life. Um, you know, I loved to, uh, you know, quote, take care of, a.k.a. be bossy to my siblings, <laughs> you know, and let them know who is in charge. Um, but I definitely, I don't know, I, th I loved looking out for them, you know, and just uh, with all the all the typical sibling rivalries, there is an equal amount, if not more, of uh, just pleasant times we had together building forts or climbing trees and all that stuff that kids do. Yeah, that's, that's pretty special talking to them almost daily still today. Yeah, yeah. my yeah. youngest sister called me last night before bed, and we just had a great you know, talk for an hour, and we've all been texting all day today. I mean, it's just kind of, they're my best friends. We're just really close, and um as far as my faith goes, my parents definitely um, had a huge influence on that growing up. They always told me, you're not a Christian just because your mom and I are, your dad and I are, you know, this is a decision you have to come to on your own. So while you live with us, we expect you to attend church, but this is a decision you have to make. We want you to ask questions and figure out what you believe in and why you believe it. But they were there, you know, encouraging me and praying for me and with me. Um, and really, um, I think encouraged me to explore everything that was out there so that when I did find the truth, you know, I knew that that was what it was. How about, um, your husband, Curtis, I, I know from having met you guys at, uh, the old spaghetti factory in Phoenix, Arizona, um, and having uh, contact with Curtis that he's been very supportive. How did you two meet and what do you most respect about him? We actually met um, when I lived in Arizona down here in high school. My family moved here for about a year. And, um, you know, I, I met him in youth group and I thought he was really cute and nice. And I would write about him in my journal. And um, then I moved back to Oregon with my family to finish high school and didn't think I would see him again. Um, and then we reconnected actually through Facebook when Facebook came out, you know, and it was made available to college students. And so we ended up connecting on there through, um, our shared love of poetry. And just, um, he, you know, came up to visit me in Oregon and asked my dad if he could marry me about two months later and then proposed. Time and out, so, time out. Okay. Time out. <laughs> I heard Facebook and then I heard poetry and then I heard two months later, <laughs> Proposal. Let's work on this well, timeline yeah, here. Yeah. Well, we only spent five days together before we got engaged. I, oh my I mean, we were like 19. We were, I was 18. I think I was 19 when we got married. 
Oh my! Wow. <laughs> Listeners, we don't recommend this at home. <laughs> you, you know, if you know, you know. It's yeah. It was a good. So thing. you were kind of like high school sweethearts, sort of. Well, we were both too shy and awkward to talk to each other in high school. So once we were both in college and like super cool and confident, then I'm just kidding. We were never cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was crazy. It went by really fast, but we we were engaged for a year. So we actually we got engaged on May 23rd and then married on May 23rd. And then our son 9 years later was born or 8 years later was born on May 23rd. So wow. that's kind of our day, I guess. Yeah. We're what, like a, a week away from May 23rd, aren't we? Yeah, so it'll be yeah. our son's first birthday and our ninth anniversary, so kind of crazy. <laughs> That's your day. Cool. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about your mental health struggles and when they began and where you first turned for help. So I think growing up, um, I definitely had um, struggles with anxiety. Looking back now, I can see that's what it was. Um, every Sunday at church, you know, I would always close myself in the bathroom and just um, try to catch my breath. I felt like I couldn't breathe. And, um, that kind of morphed into depression and that was an ongoing struggle. Um, I remember struggling with body image from the time I was maybe about seven, just, um, feeling really uncomfortable in my skin and just, Mm. um, being like feeling exposed and comparing myself to people around me and just feeling really insecure. Um, in high school, that was really when, um, when I lived in Tucson, as I'd mentioned for about a year that was when my eating disorder really started to develop. Um, when that voice became really strong and, um, my depression got pretty bad. And that's one of, I think a big reason why my family moved back to Oregon. I think my parents are really worried about me and I think they felt moving back home with our friends and family would be, um, a good thing. And I had support from my youth group, uh, pastor, here in Tucson and then also my youth leader up in Oregon and they were both really supportive and there for me. Um, and those, those are the two people I turned to first for help. And then my mom, um, put me in touch with a counselor, um, once we moved back to Oregon and I was about 16 then I think or 17. Was body dysmorphia your first entry into the mental health system? Um, that to be honest is, really blurry for me. Um, I'm still missing several years of memories, um, off and on over the last seven years. Um, what I remember is, um, I know I had asked my husband if I could see a mental health professional. Um, I was having some really severe depression and mood swings that, um, now I know was, is from PTSD. But at the time when I met with this doctor, he, um, told me that I had bipolar disorder um, I think bipolar two when I first saw him and I was put on several medications, um, right away. And, um, I had been taking Adderall recreationally, um, because I was a runner and I was also in school and I just loved like that, that rush that I got and that like focus and, um, yeah. between that and the medications that my doctor put me on, which one of them was Adderall. So I just had too much in my system. I had this like manic night where I remember I had 
like cut my leg up a bunch and there's just like blood everywhere. And I'd locked myself in the bathroom and my husband was trying to calm me down and I was screaming and throwing glass and just was psychotic. Um, mm. and he, he called the, the, he called 911 and I remember like sitting on the living room floor, just sobbing. And he's saying like, my wife's trying to kill herself or I don't, you know, get someone over here. And I, I had locked myself in the bathroom and, um, paramedics, you know, like broke the door in and like dragged me out. And I was just, I was freaking out, just screaming and, um, was taken to the ER. And then was, I spent 11 or 12 days in inpatient. Um, and that was, that was when I was diagnosed with bipolar one. How much time transpired between the diagnosis of bipolar two and then bipolar one? It was just a few months. Um, mm. I, it was, I had only seen that first doctor, I think a couple of times, um, and then it was just from there, it was in and out of the hospital over and over again. And then the medication list just grew longer and longer. And then yeah. with that came more side effects that were medicated. So I was just, my brain couldn't breathe under all the medication. Right. You know, I was easily taking 15 to 17 pills a day, multiple times a day, just, wow. um, and then what age, uh, I was 20. Um, okay. And then my husband and I didn't always have insurance. Sometimes we did. And then when we didn't, you know, I would buy the medications I could when I could afford them. And then the rest of the time would supplement with other drugs or pot or alcohol or anything to try to achieve some kind of effect that my medications are supposed to be achieving or to just yeah. numb out and to just not feel anything. Um, mm-hmm. So You've shared with me, Kelsey, that... Uh, you, you've been uh, inpatient seven times. Is that right? Uh, I know it's at least eight now. I don't. At least I think, eight. I think yeah. August 2016 was my eighth, and that's the last one that I yeah. had. So. And that was all within a period of just a few years, right? Right. Yeah. So there's, yeah. Um, I think there were about two years where I hadn't been in the hospital. But then it was like at least twice a year from, um, mm. I think, 2014, 2013. Um, so, yeah, it was it was pretty intense. And then during that time, I was also misdiagnosed as having a schizoaffective disorder because my mm. hallucinations were just constant along with the mood swings. So then I was put on like extra antipsychotics for that. And just, I didn't even know who I was. I didn't, I couldn't remember anything. I would get lost driving to the grocery store. Um, yeah. I'd have to have my husband come and pick me at places because I didn't know where I was. I'd be interested in hearing some about your inpatient experiences. Eric and I have both shared some positives and as well as some negatives. And also you shared some humorous moments. <laughs> and uh, I'd, I'd like to hear some some of those stories. Let's see. Uh, man, yeah, being there, I remember the first time I went, um, I walked in with, I had this like blue blanket from the ER and I, I was wheeled in and I just remember I had the blanket over my head and I didn't want to take it off because I didn't want to see what was around me. And I was terrified and I thought, if I stay under this blanket, I'll be safe. And like a little kid hiding from monsters. And uh, that that whole couple of weeks, that first time was super crazy. I mean, pardon the pun, but like it was, yeah. it, was it was intense. Um, and, you know, it depends on when you're there and who's in there with you and what facility. That can have a big um, 
impact on your experience, you know, and that you're attending doctor. So I've had some doctors that really listened to me that really wanted to help. I've had caseworkers that were super empathetic. Um, I've met fellow patients that were really great to talk to that I learned a lot from. And then just as many negative experiences, you know, and just like with any situation in the world, when you're around a bunch of people, you're going to meet a lot of great people and maybe some people that aren't. I think after a while, I kind of got the hang of things. And, you know, while that first time was really terrifying, um, after a couple times, I just kind of got the hang of it. And, um, you know, it was fun where sometimes patients and I would wait for the visitors to file through our little community area where we would like play games at the tables and stuff and had couches and a TV and the visitors would always shuffle by in this line looking really nervous. And I always felt like a zoo animal on display. Um, so this one girl and I, we decided to just sit slumped over right, like by the walkway with like blankets on her head and just like slowly start eating checkers and watching the people walk by and watch them just kind of squirm. Because I'm like, what else are we going to do? They're staring you at us. take the red of- ones. <laughs> I'll take the black ones. So it's like, yeah. And then like one time. Tastes like licorice. Yeah. <laughs> there was one time where like a bunch of uh, visitors were walking by. And I just stood on the puzzle table and just started throwing pieces into the air. <laughs> so I was like, what are they going to do? Lock me up? Like, I have nowhere to go. <laughs> So, uh, almost four years now, you were one of the keynote speakers at the Shattering Stigma with Stories conference. And how would you compare yourself today to the woman who spoke then? I don't recognize that person. Um, unfortunately I don't even have a huge amount of memory during that time. I just, I remember that I, it was all about my eating disorder, trying to, um, be in control of a lot of things that I felt I had no control over. Yeah. I think the person that spoke was very scared. Um, and I, I remember holding up this little uh, painting my friend had given me with the word hope on it. And it was just this little two by two canvas and I still have it. It's in my son's room. And I remember holding it up over my head and telling people that if mental illness has affected their life, you know, to not lose hope, to not give up hope. And I, I feel like ever since then, that's kind of been something I've just white knuckled, you know, that I've held on to. Um, and, you know, I've seen God, give me hope and bring me through some really redemptive situations. And, um, so the person then I think had hope, but I, I don't know if I really believed it. It was just kind of, I don't know what else to hang on to. And mm-hmm. now it's like, I've seen God fulfill promises. You know, I've, I've seen him deliver the hope in a future he talks about. It's not just, you know, hope isn't just an abstract concept. That's just kind of this someday out there thing. It's, it's real. It's concrete. It's as real as the painting that I can hold in my hand, you know, and just because we may not like what um, a certain promise looks like, or a certain time frame looks like, or what healing might look like, you know, it doesn't mean that it's not there. Um, it's just God's artistic version of it. Kelsey, you had a, a real pivotal point in your journey you mentioned around the time of your eighth hospitalization, which has been um, around two years ago, right? Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about 
God's blessing at that time. So that, yeah, that whole year was pretty crazy. Um, I had been in the ICU twice that year for two different suicide attempts. Um, I was hallucinating pretty severely and there was two different times where I was just hearing this, this person telling me, you need to take all the white pills in your pill box. Um, I remember leaving the colored ones, but all the white ones I knew I had to take. And, um, both times, um, I don't, I don't remember anything about the first time that year, but the second time my husband found me and, um, I was in the ICU and then the, um, psychiatric unit and just, I couldn't understand why I hadn't died. I just, you know, my husband said he had found me on the floor and my face was blue. I just remember waking up and seeing like this really bright light from the ICU in my eyes and just wondering like, why am I still here? So, um, I had a really great experience with the hospital I was in and, um, the doctors that talked to me. And then, um, about three weeks later, three or four weeks later, um, I found out that I was pregnant again, um, with my son and I was, I was completely terrified and I didn't want to be pregnant. Um, I had miscarried the year before and I just thought like my body is in no position to grow a baby. Um, I knew I was still really underweight and probably in the worst physical condition I've ever been in. And I remember just that first day, like, you know, I called my dad and just was sobbing like, dad, I'm pregnant. And just, (laughs) I was so terrified and just, just like, no, this is not happening. And then, um, that was when it was, it was that first day when I found out I was pregnant and I just saw kind of on my bed, like Jesus's hand, just right there, just like next to me, like kind of like a vision maybe. I don't know, but it was just very clearly Jesus's hand holding mine that where he was just saying to me, I'm going to walk you through this, you know, leave this all behind, you know, I'm going to walk forward in this with you. And I remember just, I just started eating. Like I just, I would like cry through every meal trying to like get it down. And like, Mm -hmm. and you know, every time there was a gap between appointments, it was, um, you know, just this, this terror of what if something happens, what if there's no heartbeat, you know, and, um, you know, Jesus was just talking to me through the whole process. Like I'm right here with you, you know, and, um, I, I would even like bargain where I'm like, if, if I eat this extra sandwich, will you just let me keep my baby? I'll eat anything if you let me keep my baby. And I remember just like eating so much until like by the end of my pregnancy, it was like the very hungry caterpillar. You know, I was like eating through like a watermelon and a pineapple and piece of cake. Right, yeah. <laughs> Still hungry. And <laughs> um, yeah, I remember just I was in labor right, you know, that last day. Um, and the same thing happened where I'm sitting on the bed and I look down and I see Jesus holding my hand and he was like, I'm right here with you. And it was just incredible. Um, it was so liberating because I had been medicated so much for so many years. So when I went into labor, I was like, no medication. I want to remember this. I want to, you know, be fully present. And so Mm. being able to get through, you know, 17 hours of labor without medication and just have the most important moment of my life totally clear in my memory is, it was just the best thing. And, you know, I remember just like catching my son and like holding him and just, you know, feeling, feeling Jesus so closely in that room. It was, um, it was Mm. unreal and just, uh, It made me really excited to go to heaven.
pregnancy, have a lot of the other symptoms of those other diagnoses that you'd had, have those receded quite a bit? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the beginning in 2016, um, my, my therapist, she's a trauma specialist, and she was saying, I don't really think you have the diagnoses you've been given aside from your eating disorder. I don't think you have schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder. I would like to safely, like slowly titrate you off some of these medications and see where you're at. And I just kept getting better and better and better, but I didn't want to let go of my eating disorder. So while I felt like, you know, not as medicated, I was still not eating. And so, um, that August, um, during that suicide attempt when I was hallucinating, um, I don't even think it was fully for medication that I was hallucinating. Um, I wasn't even taking Adderall or anything by that point. I think it was just malnourishment where I just was like so used to just hearing things and I was just out of my mind. Um, mm. and so, you know, it's, it's, which is scary. I mean, cause eating disorders have the highest rate of uh, the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. But I feel like in our society, for me to even be treated by and be covered by insurance, my body weight had to be under a certain amount for it to be considered serious. And so to me, that's wow. baffling because it's like, if, if, can you imagine if you they had cancer treatment to a weight? Yes. But it's just a mental illness. So you don't treat depression based on your body size, but for eating disorders, for anorexia, you have to be, um, under a certain body mass index number, your weight has to be a certain amount. And so, um, mm. it, it's so, it makes me so angry because not to compare like eating disorders to heart disease or cancer or whatever, but if, if someone had cancer and they went in and a scan showed cancer cells and the oncologist said, mm, yeah, that looks like you have some cancer, but it's not bad enough. So let's wait till it really gets out of control before we can start treating you. You know, exactly. it's, you wouldn't do that with any other disease. You know, you want to nip it in the bud. But I, so many people don't get treatment now because either their insurance won't provide it or they don't think they're sick enough. They don't think they're sick mm -hmm. enough to deserve treatment or to get support for distorted body image or for um, struggles with food. Yeah. Um, so that's something that I'm really passionate about advocating for because it makes me angry and it makes me frustrated that I didn't feel like my struggles were, um, able to be validated until I forced my body into, you know, almost death. And so, yes. um, and how do you advocate now for, for that? Um, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. <laughs> I really love that community. I have made some incredible friends. Um, I have a lot of pen pals I've made through there and um, people that I've met all over the world that are also fighting to end the silence and stigma around eating disorders and how they are misrepresented in media, how they're misinterpreted, um, how they don't have a face or a size or a shape, you know, eating disorders can affect anybody, you know, they don't discriminate. It's not based on race or where you live or how old you are. It's not just about white teenage girls. to transition to talking about your faith journey and how that has paralleled with your mental health journey? Mm -hmm. So earlier I had told 
you guys about how my parents really influenced my beliefs and, um, definitely throughout high school, um, I would go back and forth between feeling really close to the Lord and then just totally, you know, just being really angry at him. Um, and when I moved to Tucson and got married, I just, um, I felt pretty steady for that first year. I just felt, you know, close to the Lord. And then there was just so many things that happened, um, pretty much from the time I was 18 onward, um, the year before I moved to Tucson and then the years after. And I just, uh, I got really confused at first and just, um, and just got angry because I felt like it was more and more things that were happening. And I just didn't understand if, you know, you hear people say, Oh, if God loves me, why is this happening? But it's true. It's like, if you are raised in this environment where people say God has a purpose for everything, or you kind of have this idealistic impression as a kid, like if I'm a Christian, good thing, good things will happen to me and bad things won't. Um, but that's not actually what we're promised. And so it's just that God is with us when the hard things happen. And I didn't like that. I was very angry and I just hated God. I did not want anything to do with him. And, um, my husband and I went to church for the first couple years of our marriage. And then there was just so much stuff that happened. We both, I think just, um, we both were just really depressed. We didn't want to really be around, um, other Christians there. It felt like there was a lot of hypocrisy in the church when it came to loving people with mental illness. Um, you know, I had been part of our worship team and I was asked to leave just because the leader heard that I had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and thought that I might be unreliable. And I just, um, yeah, one by one, you know, thing after thing, I, I think I just got angrier and angrier and, um, it was just something I so badly wanted to just be close to Jesus, but I didn't know how to get there. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm too broken for him. I'm not useful. And I know, I know, you know, he says, Oh, I can redeem everything, blah, 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 but I'm beyond his ability. And so that was pretty harsh to realize like how arrogant I had been thinking that somehow, despite, you know, billions of people ever in the world that I was beyond God's ability to heal, you know, like, you know, God, I'm sure you're pretty powerful and all that, but you haven't met me like, you know, and so having to like be able to accept grace and realize like my sin is just as sinful as anyone else's sin. It's, it's been covered and it's been made clean and I have to just accept it. There's nothing I can do to run away from grace. I think it was when I was in the hospital this very last time and I just wanted a fresh start. And I remember walking out of that building and feeling, just feeling hopeful and not really sure why. And I, um, you know, I was like the lowest weight I've ever been. I was in the worst physical condition ever, but I just felt like my heart, my heart just felt different. Like something happened. And, um, so, yeah. And like I said, you know, after that, I found out I was pregnant and it was just really in those, really in those meal times while I was pregnant, talking to God about how I was feeling and all my fear, a lot of other stuff came with this, you know, where God had asked me like, what are you afraid of? And what have I not 
um, brought you through already, you know, and it's like, yes, things happen, but you're still here. One of my biggest prayer requests that year had been for my husband and I to find a home church because we just didn't have a place that felt like, um, our spiritual family. And we got invited to the church we're still at currently. And I just fell in love with it. And I haven't, I haven't made it through a single Sunday since without just crying during the service (laughs) or every single Sunday, I just start like bawling and it's just the most alive place I've ever been to. It's just so real and authentic. And, you know, I've gotten plugged in with like the women's Bible study recently. And my husband and I are part of a small group and I'm talking to the worship leader about joining the worship team. Potentially it's been, yeah. Just so transformative. What does healing mean to you? I think it, for me, it means to just not be stagnant, you know, not be complacent and okay with where I'm at and like think, you know, I, things are okay. I have no more room to grow, nothing left to learn, you know, and just um, being willing to be put through change, to be uncomfortable, to be willing to keep moving even when it's hard. I think Mm. healing is a process. And so, you know, de- deciding at some point that the process is over, I don't know, seems silly because I feel like there's always more to learn and more to grow. Absolutely. I, I do want to hear a little bit about the nu- nutrition. Oh, yes. Uh, well, a big part of this is just the whole concept of intuitive eating, and that's a whole other thing. But for me, you know, it's learning that food has no moral value. There's no such thing as, you know, I worked out really hard, so I deserve that cupcake or, you know, I'm going to be bad. I need a brownie or, you know, I'm so good because I ate a salad. I'm like, food is just food. It's just nutrients. Your body's going to take what it needs from anything you give it. Um, and listening to your hunger cues and what your body's asking for and honoring that has been really important for me to learn. So, You know, some days I will enjoy ice cream. Other days I will enjoy salad. But one does not make me good or one does not make me bad. I'm not cheating on the days I have ice cream or being unhealthy. I'm just enjoying food as food so that I can live my life. But the fuel that food gives me, you know, I I eat anything and everything, you know, based on what sounds good. So it's, you know, I try to eat very colorful, nutrient-dense foods, but I also enjoy some processed foods and foods that have sugar in them. It's, I don't see food as a moral thing. It's just, it's just food. Well, Kelsey, thanks again for spending time with us. And thank um, you for having me on here. This has been so great. Yeah. And uh, we'll look forward to talking with you some more. Awesome. Thank you guys. Okay. Thank you, Kelsey. Well, Tony, uh, we just wrapped up the interview with Kelsey Rockhold. Very good interview. I enjoyed it much. Uh, I don't know Kelsey, but I feel like I know her a lot better now. Yeah, she's very transparent. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the conference, how that was Yeah, so uh, primarily through my editor, Leanne Seip, we were asked to speak in Lake Oswego at the first Shattering Stigma with Stories, arranged by Tara Ralstead. Um, and it was about breaking stigma through uh, stories and mental 
health, there were a number of speakers, keynote speakers, and a number of breakout sessions. Kelsey and I were two of the keynote speakers. It went very well. I really appreciate her um, her experience with working through her anorexia. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know a whole lot of people who have who have been through that, um, and I feel like she gave a really strong account of, of the struggles and also some of her um, thoughts in improving the mental health care system as far as it goes and mm-hmm. treating people with that kind of diagnosis. And it's clear she's gotten to some of the root issues of her um, mental health struggles with the trauma. The uh, part I, I like there at the end about intuitive eating, that was brilliant. Yeah. I, I've never heard that stated that that concisely and clearly, um, I, I will definitely be thinking about that Yeah, when I eat food in the future. Yeah, I think it can be integrated with a lot of people's approach to food. Uh, I think it's especially key for people who have eating, eating disorders of some kind to be more at peace with what they eat and... Mm-hmm. Uh, not stress over how much or what kinds. Yeah, so Kelsey comes from a a strong family background. Um, Mentioned her her father a number of times, grandfather, her sisters. I think it just speaks really highly of how that strong, consistent support of family can really help out. Yeah, and you know, it's true that um, it's also evidence that Anyone any, from any family can have mental health struggles. You know, you can have the most nurturing, uh, supportive, faithful family and still run into mental health issues, mental illness diagnoses. Yes. And uh, it, 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 no one is immune. For our next show, my sister Maria Ress-Riddle. The art therapist. Yes, the art therapist. Maria is actually in transition from uh, Colorado, Denver, to uh, Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, where she's going to be taking a, uh, a job with a mental health care provider down there. Interestingly, her employer will be the same Centerstone that I um, <clears throat> see my psychiatrist is with Centerstone, and my sister April is a psych nurse. Yeah. From we are both clients of Centerstone, yep. you and me, and both of our sisters work for Centerstone. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Many touchstones yes. at Centerstone. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Maria's in transition. She's going to be in town, and I, I thought that it would be good to have the voice of an art therapist on the show. I think that would be a, a great voice to reveal. I think a lot of people probably don't know what art therapy is. Uh, I know I have more to learn, and I'm sure we'll learn more when Maria's here with us. So stay tuned. Very good. Maria, look forward to having you. Yep. Bye. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices.
Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. I do. I put them in coconut <laughs> milk and make pudding out of it. Do you guys not like chia seeds? Oh, There's I love chia seeds. There. I don't know if I've had chia seeds. I don't even know where you get chia seeds. Are they from just a plant? I don't actually grow them in my backyard, Kelsey. <laughs> <laughs>